Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. A grocery store clerk once wrote a letter to the advice columnist Ann Landers. And uh, her letter contained a, a grievous complaint on her part because folks with food stamps were coming into the grocery line and buying what she termed as luxury items. Some people had come through and bought things like birthday cakes and bags of shrimp. And to her, in her mind, this was treating themselves to non-essentials. And in her mind, again, these people were lazy and wasteful. Her words, not mine. So a few weeks later, apparently, Anne had received many, many responses to this lady's comment. And she decided to take an entire day and post them to this grocery store clerk. One lady wrote, I didn't buy a cake, but I did buy a big bag of shrimp with my food stamps. So what? My husband had been working at a plant for 15 years when it shut down. That shrimp casserole I made was for our wedding anniversary dinner, and it lasted for three days. Another woman who had bought the birthday cake, responded. I bought that cake for $17, and I paid for it with food stamps. I thought the checkout woman in the store would burn a hole through me with her eyes. What she didn't know is that cake was for my little girl's birthday, and it probably will be her last. Truthfully, we never know what somebody else is dealing with, what they're going through, what their circumstances are, what their background is. And yet, there is something in us that can see clearly the wrongs of others, the failures of others, while graciously glossing over our own. How can we be so blind to our own flawed brokenness and sin. How does that happen? And what I want you to note with me today as we walk through this is that your own perceived righteousness will not stand up before Jesus on judgment day. Your own perceived righteousness will not stand up before Jesus on judgment day. Now, I want to walk through this with us, but I want to initially, again, remember where we are in Romans and where we are going. Uh, as we introduced this book several weeks ago, if you recall, Paul, I think, is writing to connect Jesus, the gospel, uh, to one another in, in a clear way, in a very detailed way. And he's also writing to defend the gospel. Now he's doing that in part because of the rejection of Jesus by the Jews. 
Folks, remember in the first century, people are thinking, this is a Jew. This is a Jewish Messiah. Why are his people rejecting him if he came for them? Doesn't make sense. So Paul is defending that reality and he's explaining it. And before he's done, he's going to connect the ethical standard in essence of God and the gospel and all of the implications of that. Chapters 12 to 15 are this incredible connection of the gospel to daily living, how you treat others. It matters. In some respects, Paul's going to address that issue today. And again, what I want you to note, don't miss this as we walk through it. Your own perceived. And folks, let's be honest. A lot of our righteousness, it's perceived. I I think I'm righteous. Am I really? Are you really righteous? You think that you are. Are you? Our perceived righteousness will not stand up before Jesus on judgment day. And that's an issue. Now, it's imperative that we remember where we're coming from. As Paul begins, he lays the groundwork of the Gentiles as sinners. Verses 18 to 32, Paul makes the case. We, as Gentiles, are sinful. Now, Paul's turning a corner, and he's going to make a really, really significant point, connection for Jewish people. In their minds, because of their relationship, prior relationship with God, because of the covenant of God with Abraham and then with Moses and all that that means for them, because they have this unique connection with God, they actually are superior to the description of the Gentiles and the Gentiles as they're described in in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Paul's point, listen carefully to me, Paul's point throughout is to demonstrate that God is an impartial judge, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. You still have an issue. It's sin. You are sinful to your core. I don't know about you, but I felt that the last two weeks, okay? Now Paul's turning, in a sense, to religious people. Okay? Uh, So I've got bad news. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But it will get better. All right? It's going to get better. But Paul's point, again, is going to be to address those who perceive themselves to be righteous. So, verses 1 to 5, the first thing that we note is God's righteous judgment of the self-righteous. God is going to rightly, appropriately judge the self-righteous. Now, in this section, again, Paul's moving from third person to second person, almost like he's having a dialogue. He begins similarly the way he began with the Gentiles. If you remember back in chapter 1, he says, See there without excuse. Look where he begins in chapter 1, or verse 1 here. Look what he says. You have no excuse So in a sense, he's linking these two up immediately as he begins his argument. He's kind of putting them side by side. 
You think you're better than the Gentiles because you're a Jew, because of this communication from God. You you think that you have this unusual position. Paul says you are just like they are without excuse before God. He goes on. He says, every one of you who judges in reality, you're passing judgment on another. You condemn them because you, the judge, practice the same things. You are condemning them, though in truth you are every bit as unrighteous as they are. You demonstrate the same kinds of failure, the same kinds of sin, the same kinds of trespass and iniquity against God that they do. And folks, if you couldn't feel that as we walk through 21 characteristics of unrighteousness, your conscience is really hard. Right? I mean, those 21 things, those are convicting. I've been thinking on those things all week. And it didn't help yesterday when he called us a sinner. And we demonstrate that in our marriage. And I thought, man, I, I thought I was done with that section. It's true. That's where we live. It's a reality. Despite our perceived religious status, despite our perceived connection with God. And that's Paul's point is that often those who judge others as guilty, they practice the same things. They act in the same unrighteous ways. And what Paul asserts is that God's judgment is going to fall. It is going to come and it will come on all those who practice such things. Because you sin, you're worthy of God's judgment. You rightly deserve God's judgment. And we know that it's coming. So Paul follows that up now with two rhetorical questions in verses three and four. And those questions are both intended to get us to the place where we understand you can't get out of God's judgment. You're not going to miss it. It's coming for one and all. Every individual will give account to God. So verse 3, he gives that initial question. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, that you're going to escape this? You really think you're going to get away? You really think this isn't going to apply to you? Second question. Or do you presume? And in a sense, this is not just a rhetorical question. It's an accusation. Paul is asserting something almost like a courtroom. Do you really perceive that you can presume on the gracious kindness of God by continuing in your sin and acting like it isn't there? You really think that that's going to work? You really think in the end that the way you live and the way you think, it's, it's fine with God. It measures up to the way God thinks and what concerns God, what matters to Him, what God prioritizes. Verse 5. 
he addresses the persistence, the hardness of this one's heart. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are actually storing up the wrath of God. God is going to judge your sin. There is no way to escape it. And you can act like it's not there. And you can act like it's not a big deal. The truth is you will give account to God. And the truth is for some of us, as we make sinful choices on this planet, we are reaping the consequence of those sinful choices all the time. That is what Paul demonstrates to us with the Gentiles. It's literally, you don't want to acknowledge that God exists. You don't want to acknowledge that God is real. That's okay. You don't have to. You'll reap the consequence of that claim. You can't live like that and not suffer the consequences. God has designed his world that way. And the truth is for us, at times in our minds, we're thinking God is sitting in heaven and he's waiting. When I step out of line, he's going to get me. No, he's not. God actually designed his world in such a way that when you sow, there will be a reaping. So if you sow certain things, you're going to reap certain things. You can't go out into a field and sow corn and at the end of the season come back and, oh my, there's soybeans out here. What happened? No, we all get it. That doesn't work that way. It's the same with life, and that's Paul's point. You are sowing this hardness of heart that you don't have to respond to God, and you don't have to live the way He calls you to live, and you don't have to be concerned about what things that concern Him. And Paul says, that's not true. All you're doing is piling up the wrath of God because of your sin. It's easy for us to look at others around us even those outside the church, even those that, that, that maybe don't know the Lord and be a bit judgmental. <clears throat> Have you ever driven by somebody on the side of the road and had a judgmental thought about them? They, they should go get a real job. Uh, there's a Walmart right there, right? Right? Or, or there's a target right there. They should go get a job. They should go to that gas station and get a job. They should go. Folks, we've all had that thought. Every single one of us has had that thought. And yet, we sin in the same ways. You say, that's not true. I've never stood on the corner and done that. I understand that. Have you ever been self-serving, selfish? Have you ever taken advantage of somebody? Have you ever tried to get something that truly you did not earn? Folks, we all do the same thing. We just justify it in us while we look at somebody else and say, man, what a rascal. <laughs> no, I'm the rascal. And you are, right? He goes on in verse 6. And here's where it gets interesting. And here's where... In our interpretation, we all almost can prematurely jump into chapter 3. All right? and, and I'll explain more of why in just a moment. But Paul's going to continue to build his argument, the standard measure for God's judgment. And I do want you to understand that is what Paul is laying out. Paul is explaining to you 
God's standard for judgment. I don't know about you, but, but the way I grew up and the sermons I heard as a child, I was deeply concerned about God's judgment. And that somebody stood in front of me and said, here's the measure. Here's the standard. Here's what it's about. I would have taken notes. I would have bought the tape. I would have listened to it again and again and again and again. Because I'd have loved to know what that was. I'm, I'm pretty analytical. I kind of like to know what it is. I'd like to write it down. I can even make a chart out of it of the things I should do and not do. That's not the point. But we are given the standard. So look at what he says first in verse 6. This is his quote initially. As he's going to develop this argument, he says, He will render to each one according to his works. And then he says in verse 7, To those who by patience or endurance in well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, initially, what all of you are saying is, in that section you read, Pastor Dave, it said works and it said eternal life. We have got to address that first. And here's the truth. No, we don't. Paul's point is not salvation here. Listen carefully to me. His point is judgment day. His point is judgment day. His point is not salvation. His point is judgment day. And what happened as a result of the Reformation and the Reformation is a wonderful thing. But the Reformers themselves were not divinely inspired. And what that means is this. Some of their interpretations might not be 100% on. So here's what happens. Because of the Reformation and because of where the Reformers were coming from, all of them, in many ways, the Catholic Church... Most of them take chapter 2 and they say this isn't about works. It's not about living. It can't be. Because we're leaving that. So here's the truth. It is about that. That's absolutely what it's about. But remember the overarching, overall point that Paul is trying to make. Judgment day, God is impartial. Judgment Day, God does not show favorites. Judgment Day, you are accountable. That is Paul's point. When we get to chapter 3, we'll talk about works. We'll, we'll talk about the reality that works cannot save. We will. That's not Paul's point here. And so we can't jump to chapter 3. we got to stay in chapter 2. All right? So let me show you, and this is the best part of this. You wait till you see it. I've been excited about this for many hours, and I've been excited to explain this to you. And when you see it, if you have a pulse, you too will be excited. All right? Okay, first, the quote in chapter or in verse 6 comes from, I think, Psalm 62, 12, also Proverbs 24. But what I want you to observe is this. This is not, this is not a foreign idea. This is not something as you engage your Bible that is an odd thing. This would have been readily and easily accepted by Paul's audience. 
Everyone understood you're accountable for the way you live. You are. Um, Folks, if you go to court because you got pulled over in your car, you're accountable for what you did. Um, The the bulk of you in this room, I'll use my wife, she, she doesn't speed. She's one of the most careful drivers on the planet. To be honest with you, it tests her sanctification for me to be a rider, and it tests mine, because I'm thinking we could get there faster. But she's careful. And you know what that means? She has never received a letter in the mail saying, you need to appear in a court, because you broke the law. I can't say that. (laughs) I wish I could say that. I can't say that. So all of us have to give an account the same way for what we do. That's his point. And that's where he's going. Now look at where he connects this. And he does connect it. He does say eternal life. All right? Okay, so why does he say that? Look what he says, verse 7 again. So to those who buy patience. Patience, there is endurance. These folks are enduring in what? In well-doing. Folks, the literal idea of that word well-doing is simply this. They work good. They do good work. They do good work. What what, what is that? What are those? Well, he defines it. They are seeking. You know what that word seeking means? It's really good. It's a serious effort to realize a desire. This is something someone is passionate about and they are longing for. What are they passionate about and longing for? Look what he says. Look at, watch this. They're passionate for glory and honor and immortality. And we say, Pastor Dave, you, you are headed down the heresy road here. Like, what are you talking about? I'm telling you, this is good. All right, now watch. I want you to go back to verse 21 of chapter 1. And I want you to observe one of the things that humanity is disregarding. They're doing away with in relation to God. Look at what he says, verse 21. Watch. For although they knew God, they did not honor. They did not honor him. Okay, jump back to chapter 2, verse 7. Look at our list. Glory and honor. Okay, we got one word. That's interesting. Look back at verse 23. Look back at verse 23 and look what it says. As he wraps that first section up that we looked at, just those five verses, look what he says. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God. Go back to verse 7. You see two words there? Ring a bell. Glory, immortality. Now listen carefully to me. I think what Paul is describing is a longing and a seeking for the very thing that humanity rejects. Giving God honor, giving God glory, seeking the immortality of God, we exchange that for, as he goes on in verse 23, mortal stuff. People, animals, he even says creeping things, right? Bugs. 
<laughs> I wrote spiders in my notes a week or two ago. Right? We, we exchange the immortality of God for all this mortal stuff. And Paul says to those who by endurance in seeking, doing good, they are seeking these characteristics of God. These are not things that they are seeking for themselves. This is not, I'm longing for personal glory. I'm longing for honor. I am longing for immortality, and I'm going to figure out how to do it, right? This isn't Ponce de Leon looking for the fountain of youth. No, that's not what we're talking about. This is seeking God. Seeking to know God. Seeking to be transformed by God. This will result, they will be given eternal life. Now, there's a lot that we could say about that. In order for that to happen, there has to be some transformation in your heart. You aren't naturally seeking after that, right? So in, in all reality, this is somebody who has turned in faith to Jesus, but what demonstrates that faith is this passionate seeking after God. The things that characterize God, that define him. On the flip side, verse 8, look what he says. But for those who are self-seeking and they do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So the flip side of the one who is seeking God is the one who is self-seeking, selfish. They are dominated by what they want and what they love and what satisfies them and what they long for. And that's what they're focused on. And that's what they're going to get. However, in whatever manner they can, that is what they're going to get. That is what they are chasing. This defines our culture. And folks, for a moment, I want you to stop and I want you to consider this defines our American culture. It also defines the American church. The American church is often self-seeking. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I like. It's about what I can get. What are you going to give me? How is this going to benefit me? Folks, listen to me. That does not characterize a person who is transformed by God. It does not. It doesn't. It's just a reality. And Paul is going to go on and repeat again the reality, the coming consequences of their actions in verses 9 and 10. He goes on, he, he finishes with those who are self-seeking, verse 9, there's going to be tribulation, distress for every human being who does evil. And then he includes that phrase, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? Because God's impartial in that. So the reality is we can perceive in ourselves this righteousness, I, I'm right, I know I've grown up in a Christian uh, home or in Christian environment or I went to a Christian school or whatever. You know, I, I know the Christianese. But folks, is your life defined by self-seeking? That is serious. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, there are hundreds and thousands, many Thousands of people that sit in a church service every week and salve their conscience that somehow 
They're, they're, God's okay with them. What would make you think that? What would make you think that God's okay with you? Well, I'm in church. So what? Are you self-seeking? Is life about you and what you want and the way you want it and when you want it and you're going to get it and it doesn't matter what anyone else tells you. That is sobering. It's jarring. But that is Paul's point. He goes on in verse 10 and he, he finishes. He comes back to where we're at in verse 7. He says, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? Because God shows no partiality. Now, a couple of things are fascinating here. There's a lot of similarity to Paul's language in Romans 2 and James' language in James 2. A lot of similarity. God is impartial. And it matters how you live. It matters how you live. Folks, there are some of us, if we are honest, we will walk out of these doors today and we will not think about God until we walk back in them. I am not trying to be unkind to you, but you are self-seeking if that defines you. If God never enters your mind, your life is about you. That's it. And that is sobering. These verses are sobering. Because we all got to stand before God. In our westernized Christian world, we have reduced Christianity and Christian living to whatever we decide matters and whatever we prioritize. That's what we care about. That's what we focus on. That's what we say, this matters to God. But I want you to think for a moment. Do our priorities actually reflect God's priorities? Do our daily priorities, do our daily passions and longings, do they reflect God's? Are your priorities truly what God desires and what God honors? I'm on this little uh, email list for very, very inexpensive Christian books that, that come out in Kindle form, and I get this thing every day, except Sundays, because it's Christian. Uh, so they don't send it on Sunday. This week, uh, one of the books that was on the list is a book entitled Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And the subtitle was Moving from Affluence to generosity. The author of that book wrote another book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind and his jarring question on the front cover of the book is, why are Christians living like the rest of the world? Because we've all decided that we can. We've all decided that our priorities certainly must be God's. We've all decided that, you know what? What God says throughout his entire Bible, I don't think that should have that much bearing in my life. I don't think it should matter that much. I don't think I should prioritize those things. I want you to think about often the way that we live, the rest of the world. How do we live differently than the rest of the world? Think about things like our emotional responses 
Like envy. What about anger? What about greed? Folks, do you understand greed can be just hoarding something that you have rightly made? Folks, that's greedy. It is. And do you understand that empires have been built in our country on that issue, greed, while calling it Christian? And I won't say any names. But folks, that does not honor God. I challenge you this week, if you disagree with me on this, I challenge you, you go to your Bible and you tell me where God instructs you or even suggests that you should prioritize building generational wealth. That is such an American mindset that does not honor God. You know what God cares about? Building his kingdom. Do we care about that? Do you care about that? Do you give and participate like you care about building God's kingdom? Folks, listen to me. That's what matters. And that's what matters to God. And that's what you'll give account for. Right? Consider the the ways that we think. The ways we think about marriage. The ways we think about our time. The ways we think about entertainment. What about our interactions? The way that we treat other people? How does our living reflect the concerns of God? And what I want to suggest to you today is this. In our westernized Christian world, what we have decided is the New Testament matters and the Old Testament we don't fully understand and so it doesn't matter and we don't have to do any of it. And what I want us to comprehend is this. Even in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, God is laying out what matters. So yes, of course, no one would expect or even consider that you should take 613 laws from the Pentateuch and go home and write them out and make sure you never break one. No, absurd, agreed. Here's what it does mean. Those 613 laws, they reflect God's priorities. And those priorities are repeated everywhere in the New Testament. Everywhere. Some of those 613 laws, you know what they describe? Not loving the world more than you love your God. I think John talks about that. Right? Some of those 613 laws talk about how you approach God and worship God. Well, I think our New Testament talks about that. And certainly those 613 laws are not repeated in the New Testament, but the concerns and priorities of God have not changed. They have not changed. So we don't do those things because we're trying to gain favor with God. We do not do those things because we're trying to gain favor with God. We do those things because we love God. We dearly love God. And we want to do what He prioritizes and what concerns Him. I know that I've told you this story before, but it absolutely illustrates this point perfectly. There was a lady many, many, many years ago got married to a man, and when they got married, this man was incredibly 
OCD, should we call him. And after they got married, he gave her a list. It was a long list of her tasks and her duties daily. Her bre- his breakfast was to be on the table at a certain time. Dinner was to be served at a certain time. Clothes were to be washed a certain way, dried a certain way, ironed a certain way, put away a certain way. He wanted them in the drawers for him. He didn't want to have to mess with that. He had a long list of the groceries that she was to get and when she was to get them and the meals that he liked and the ones that he didn't like. And for years, she dutifully did the list. All the while, not really enjoying the man she did it for. Finally, probably mercifully, he died. And she was free. (laughs) She was free of her list. And along came another man whom she married. And two or three years into her marriage, you know what she discovered? She was doing all the same tasks, exactly the same way, and she loved it. Because she loved him. And folks, that is exactly the point with Scripture. It's not, this is a stick to beat you with. It's this. This is what matters to God. That's why it matters to me. This is what God cares about. That's why I care about it. This is what God prioritizes. That's why I'm going to prioritize it in my life. And folks, what I want you to consider with me this morning is this. Are we prioritizing what God prioritizes? Because for most of us, you know where we're stuck? We perceive ourselves to be righteous. We perceive ourselves to be good. We perceive ourselves to be living up to the standard we're supposed to be living up to. Doing all the right things in all the right ways. But are we? Are we actually practicing God's concerns and his priorities? We should. And by God's grace, we can. Hopefully, you can see as we walk through this, your perceived righteousness is not enough. It's not enough. It will not stand before Jesus on judgment day. John Milton, in his famous Paradise Lost, he wrote this sentence, Neither man nor angel nor can discern hypocrisy, the only evil that walks invisible except to God alone. And in truth, folks, our self-righteousness and our hypocrisy, we are blind to it so many times. It is invisible to us. But God knows it very, very well. And he will not be deceived by it. He will not be tricked by it. He will not be overwhelmed by it. On judgment day, it will not be a debate. I I just, I had no idea, Lord, that that mattered to you. Why not? (laughs) Why not? We can, we should. By God's grace, will you? If you don't know Jesus today, this this does not matter to you. That's first. You've got to turn in faith to Jesus. If you know Jesus today, this matters to you. And how will you allow God to shape you and transform you through this 
truth. It should shape us. It should change us. It should alter the way that we think and the way that we respond. Will it? It's not natural, so we need help.